Well, let me add my good evening to those folks that have already greeted you. My name is Tom Ricks, and I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree, and we're glad that you are here this evening. We've been on this journey uh, the last three or four weeks. If you haven't been with us, if you're just here for the first time tonight, and I and I stole from Charles Dickens the the idea of uh, Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future. Uh, and our first Sunday that we looked at this, we talked about the promise of Christmas past. And we looked way back in the Old Testament at Isaiah 11. Isaiah lived in a very difficult time, a very, a very stark time in the history of his country. They had been overrun. They had, they had been uh, occupied by a foreign country. Uh, all of the best and the brightest had been exiled. And Isaiah looks around and his, and his world is miserable. It's really terrible. And yet there's a promise made by God in Isaiah chapter 11 that from, from 500 years before Isaiah lived, King David was like, like the king. It's like Abraham Lincoln is to the United States or George Washington is to the United States. King David was the king in Israel. And in the midst of this terrible time, Isaiah gets this promise that God says, you know what, there's going to be another David that's going to come, but he's going to be even better than the first one. And he's going to restore the world to what it should be. And Isaiah gets that, that promise uh, in a very difficult time. And so we kind of ask the question, can you trust God's promises? Uh, does that really uh, hold water that God's going to do that? Uh, the next week, we looked at uh, the reality of Christmas present. Uh, we w- moved up to 2 Corinthians, moved up to the New Testament, and we talked about the reality being that the world around us, again, is a difficult place. Our world hasn't changed that much from the time of Isaiah, some 1,500, excuse me, some 2,500 years ago. There's still a lot of war going on in our country. There's still children that are being orphaned. Uh, because of civil war. There's still uh, all kinds of disease that's rampant. The AIDS pandemic continues to ravage the continent of Africa. And yet behind the scenes of what we see physically in the, in the material world, there is a movement of God that is marching through the pages of history right down to our generation. And the reality of Christmas present is that God has called disciples of Jesus today to make a difference in our world, which led to this last Sunday, which was the hope of Christmas future. And that that hope resides in the fact that Jesus is preparing something that's much better for us than what we are experiencing today. And he calls us to persevere and he calls us to to, um, walk through our lives in a way that trusts him. And so tonight, we're going to continue with with the future, but I'm going to change the word from the hope of Christmas future to the glory of Christmas future. We're actually going to come full circle back to Christmas future to the glory how he concludes that promise. Uh, when we were uh, first married, the winter of uh, 1982, Cindy and I, along with some other family members, uh, traveled. Cindy and I actually traveled from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, we were on our way to Denver to see my brother and then on to Colorado Springs to see her mom uh, and some of their family members. So we tra- were traveling about 1,200 miles uh, in December of 1982. And on Christmas Eve day, we were going across Kansas. The goal was to get to my brother's house by supper time. We were traveling across Kansas on Christmas Eve day. Cindy was pregnant with Nathan, uh, about three months pregnant. And one of the worst snowstorms ever to hit Western Kansas hit. And in the course of about 17 hours, 38 inches of snow was dumped on Western Kansas. So we had the wonderful opportunity to spend the second half of Christmas Eve day, all of Christmas Eve evening, uh, all day Christmas day, And until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on December the 26th at the Motel 6 in Goodland, Kansas, right off the interstate. Now, if you've never done that before, that is really a delight. You should should give that a whirl sometime. Uh, I am just kidding. Don't ever do that to you or to anybody you know. (laughs) But why do people go to so much travel, to so much trouble? Why do people travel so far to be together 
with friends and family on Christmas? Why is it that, that we work so hard to get everybody together? Maybe you, you've come from a dinner where you've seen cousins that you haven't seen since last Christmas. Or you're getting ready to, to go over to family member's house tomorrow. Uh, or your family's gathering at your place, and then you're going to go over to your mom's place. And there's all of this time together. It's also a time when people come back to church. It's a time when people stop to say, you know, maybe there is something more. And so we, we make the effort to maybe come to a service like this to, uh, to, to hear the old carols and maybe to see some friends that we haven't seen in a while and to uh, consider once again uh, the spiritual aspect of our lives. Why have we gathered here tonight? Is it a man-made celebration? I mean, is it just really that we want to try and wish the best for one another? We know the world is a broken place. We're no fools. We're not hiding our heads in the sand. We can, we can read a newspaper. We, we look at the headlines on the internet. We know the reality of the situation, and maybe we're just trying to make the best of it. Or perhaps we're holding on with, with all of our might to a, a vain hope that we know probably isn't true, but we'd sure like to think it was. It's almost like walking out of a movie theater after you see a great movie that really has a great ending, and you go, you know, I know that was fiction, but boy, it sure felt good. I, I, really, I really wish it were true. Or perhaps some will say, you know, I'm just doing my duty. I think this is what God expects me to do. I think on Christmas Eve, you're supposed to be on church in church somewhere uh, listening to somebody talk about Jesus. I think there are a lot of reasons why people maybe gather in a place like this and all over our community of Kirkwood and all over the city of St. Louis and all over the world. But I think there's a deeper reason. And I hope that, that many of us who are disciples of Jesus are here tonight because we know that the Lord has offered this promise of life. We understand the realities of Christmas present, but there's a hope. And we celebrate what God is doing, the glory that is to come, the glory that's been embedded in our hearts now and is beginning to bear fruit, but will we'll reach its fullest capacity when we're face-to-face with Jesus. Which brings me to Isaiah chapter 11. Again, some 500 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah writes this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leper shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. And a cow and a bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. I'm going to stop there, and I'm going, to, I'm going to go on and read a couple more verses in a few minutes. But this is truly a, a remarkable turn of events. If you, if you follow this passage on the screen, or, or you think about what's being said here, this is something that is, that is completely unheard of. The idea that a wolf would lie down with a lamb. A wolf doesn't lie down with a lamb. A wolf lies down with the bones of a lamb after he's enjoyed a nice supper of lamb. <laughs> Those two don't cohabitate together. The leopard lying down with a young goat is something that doesn't happen. We would say that's unnatural. It's unnatural for a lion to be around a calf or a fatted calf and not take, have its predatory nature take over. Isaiah is seeing something truly remarkable, truly unheard of, certainly in our generation, and certainly unheard of since the beginning of time. What is it that Isaiah is seeing And what does it matter to us tonight? And what bearing does it have on the glory of Christmas future? Well, what Isaiah is seeing is the establishment of God's kingdom for eternity. He's seeing a picture of the the, uh, beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. He's looking past the generation in which you and I live, and he's seeing even further into the future 
when Jesus will return and we will, he will establish his kingdom. And he's given us some of the benchmarks or some of the identification pieces of what this is going to look like. And the metaphorical language he uses with the wolf dwelling with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat is simply his way of saying there's going to be peace on earth. The promise that was made that night so long ago that the Emmanuel, God with us, would would bring peace on earth is going to ultimately be fulfilled one day. We don't yet see it. We have glimpses of it. But Isaiah says it's going to come, and let me tell you what it will look like. It will mean peace. It will mean friendship, where friendship never existed before. It will mean a cessation of hostility. It will be an absence of fear, an absence of pain, an absence of suffering. It will be nature the way it was intended. He says in verse 6, or excuse me, in verse 7, kind of more of the same of verse 6. He talks about the cow and the bear grazing together. But then he says, um, they're young shall lie down together. And he's adding a little bit of a nuance there. And, and what he's, Isaiah is saying there is that this isn't going to be a generational thing. This is something that's going to go on and on and on into perpetuity. It's not just a one-time flash in the pan and then it's over. But this will happen, and it will happen with their young and their young after them and their young after them. And Isaiah is speaking about everlasting life. He's saying this new kingdom that God is going to bring about is going to be an eternal kingdom. And the preeminence in this kingdom is going to be, again, it's going to be peace, and it's going to be joy. Uh, You know, right now we enjoy human relationships, but we only enjoy them to a point, right? I mean, tonight, you know, maybe you've had some family come into town, or maybe your family that's come into town. Now, what I'm about to say is is maybe going to offend somebody, and somebody's going to lie to you later and say, no, we don't feel that way, but it just isn't true. What I'm about to tell you is really accurate. We are so happy to see our family walk through our door. But aren't we also kind of happy about three and a half days later when they're walking out the door and we're helping with the bags to the car? You know, it's been a good visit, but boy, it's kind of good to get back to normal, isn't it? Why? Because as humans, we, we start to start to kind of rub on each other. We start to get under each other's skins. And you know, the stuff that I did that irritates my brother when I was eight years old, it still irritates him today. <laughs> the stuff that the way my, my mom talked to me a little bit when I was 12, I, I still hear it sometimes in my, in my head today. And that's the truth, isn't it? Sometimes relationships only take us so far, and as much as we would like them to be perfect today, they're not. I can't love Cindy perfectly today. There's no way. It just isn't possible. It's nice to tie as I have on tonight. I, there's no way that I can treat her the way I should. There's no way that I can, I can be the husband I ought to be. I'd like to be, but I know sometimes I get on her nerves. I know sometimes I butter, and vice versa because human relationships aren't perfect, but generation after generation after generation, ongoing and ongoing, Isaiah says, these relationships are going to be perfect. And then he gives us truly an astounding picture when he talks about this helpless little infant, this nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, the wean child, which would be a toddler, shall put his hand on the adder's den or inside the adder's den. And Isaiah is using very purposeful language here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and Isaiah understood the Old Testament. Isaiah knew the Pentateuch. He knew the first five books of the Bible like he knew the back of his hand. He could probably recite most of it to us. And he knew this passage in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had blown it, and Eve had been tempted by the serpent, and, and, and he had lied to her, and she had believed the lie. And she had given in, and she would eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she gave it to Adam, and he went along with her. And now the whole thing is a mess. 
And God shows up and he says, what gives? And they begin to have this conversation and God places a curse on mankind because of their willful disobedience to him. But then he looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity or hatred or division or strife. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isaiah knew that text when he wrote about this child playing next to the den of the cobra. What's he saying? He's saying that Eden is going to be restored. It's going to be put back the way it should have been before man messed it up. The curse is going to be reversed. Now, that's what we celebrate tonight. That's why, that's why I'm here. I hope that's why many of you are here, to celebrate the coming of the Christ child, because that moment in history marks an aggressive move on the part of God to take on flesh and to enter human history and to deal once and for all a death blow to the stranglehold that sin had on generation after generation, including you and me. And that God was moving forward to fulfill the glorious condition of the promises that he had made through Isaiah. That's what Isaiah is talking about. But there's two more verses tonight, and I won't go too much longer, but I think the question needs to be answered. Okay, that's what God's doing. How is he going to do it? How do I know if I'm part of that kingdom? How do I know if I'm going to be here when the wolf's lying down with the lamb, when this peace comes, when everything is prosperity, when everything is filled with grace and glory, how do I know if I will be part of the glorious Christmas future? Well, verse 9 and 10 say this, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. How is God going to do this? Well, Isaiah says in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 9, that God's holy mountain, which is, which is a symbol in the Old Testament of God's dwelling place, and he says that holy mountain is going to cover the whole earth. In other words, God's presence is going to be everywhere. Right now, the, God dwells on the earth through the Holy Spirit in the lives of disciples of Jesus. But one day we're going to see him face to face. We're going to be in fellowship with him. We're going to have an intimate friendship with him. And on that day, those who inhabit the earth will know God intimately. He says, we'll know God. The the knowledge of God will cover the earth like waters cover the ocean. Uh, And the way Jeremy explained it in the the earlier service today, I thought was really great. He said, you know, it's like there's a a giant dam. And behind that dam lie lie the river's and the waters of God's glory and God's majesty and God's grace. And there's just a little river of it now. But one day that dam's going to break. And the whole world is going to be covered with the glory of God because of the knowledge of God. And that word knowledge means intimacy. It means the very closest relationship you can have with another person. There's going to be healing. There's going to be restoration. That's how God is going to do it is by being present with his people. But what does that look like? Well, in verse 10, we come back to what he started out with in the very first verse, which I didn't read tonight, but we come back to this this idea of King David, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glory. This knowledge, this friendship, this worship, this restoration, this intimacy between God and his people all hinge on one person the root of Jesse, the Lord Jesus himself. He is the one who will unify. 
He is the one who will redeem. And Isaiah says his resting place will be glorious. His work is done. His work was done on the cross. His work was done when he paid for your sins and my sins, when he took my place and he took your place so that he could grant us salvation, so that he could grant us mercy, so that he could offer us forgiveness. Now it is on our shoulders to put our faith in him. Now it's, it's up to me to make the decision to follow Christ. And if I put my trust in him, then this glorious peace, which is described in Isaiah, will be mine. And the peace will not be just an absence of pain, not just an absence of conflict. It won't be just that I, I get along with the people around me and creation itself will be everything that it should be, but God will be at the center of my existence. That's not true today. As much as I want to say I love Jesus, he is not always at the center of my existence. I get easily distracted. I get distracted by stuff that should never, ever distract me, and I get distracted by some good stuff too. <laughs> but sometimes I lose my way. And I'm not in perfect relationship with God, but I will be one day because the work that Jesus has done, and he calls me to trust in that. He calls me to put my faith in him. And that's the question tonight. Will you know the glorious peace of Christmas future? It comes through knowing Jesus, not knowing him intellectually, but putting your faith in him, by putting your trust in him. Jeremy said earlier at the earlier service, he said, I kind of hope you're haunted by that question. Have you put your faith in Christ? Which made me think back to, uh, to how I originally came up with this deal, which was kind of borrowing, I'm going to use a nice word, from Charles Dickens, this idea of, of Christmas past, present, future. And I, and I went out and bought the book again and, and reread it. But do you remember the scene at, at almost at the end, not quite at the end, but when Scrooge is with the ghost of Christmas future? And, and, and the ghost leads him to a graveyard, and he leads him to a tombstone, which you find out as, as the plot unfolds has Scrooge's name on it. And I'm not going to read you all of this, but I'm going to read you a couple of paragraphs, because there's a point here that I really want you to get in asking the question, will you be part of the glory of Christmas future? Scrooge says this, or, or uh, Dickens writes this, the spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Speaking about Scrooge, Dickens writes, he advanced towards it trembling. The phantom was exactly as it had been, but he dreaded that he saw a new meaning in its solemn shape. Before I draw near to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be? Or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Still the ghost pointed down at the grave by which it stood. Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the courses be departed from, then the end will change. Say that it is thus with what you show me. Good spirit, he pursued, is down upon the ground. He fell before it. Your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. Scrooge asks the question, is it too late? Scrooge had been on a magical journey where he had seen his rottenness to the core. We're all dressed up tonight. I put on my, I put on, I have two red ties. This is the one that doesn't have a stain on it. 
I, I got dressed up tonight. We all look nice. We're all on our best behavior. But deep down inside, you and I, are, we know. <laughs> when nobody else is looking, when we look in the mirror, when we lay our head on the pillow at night, we know we're rotten to the core. Yeah, we do good stuff. Sure, we give some money away. We, we try to be hospitable, try to love other people. But there's some dark corners in my heart. And I know there's some dark corners in yours. And if we have to depend upon our good effort to change the outcome, then we're lost. But Jesus isn't Dickens. <laughs> and Dickens was on to something, but he didn't get it quite right. But Jesus did. Jesus said, just trust in me. I'm the one the nations are going to come inquire to. I'm the one that's going to, to fill the world with the knowledge of the Lord. Trust what I did on the cross for you. That's the glory of Christmas future. Do you know that glory tonight? John Newton, ex-slave trader, became pastor, authored a little hymn that a few folks sang from now and then called Amazing Grace. You may have heard of it. Towards the end of his life, Newton said this, I know two things. Peter became pastor. Christmas future. Will you pray with me?